Chapter Three of Socialism, Utopian and Scientific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Newfeld. Socialism, Utopian and Scientific by Friedrich Engels, translated by Edward A. Welling. Chapter Three. The materialist conception of history starts from the proposition that the production of the means to support human life, and next to production the exchange of things produced, is the basis of all social structure, that in every society that has appeared in history, the manner in which wealth is distributed and society divided into classes or orders is dependent upon what is produced, how it is produced, and how the products are exchanged. From this point of view, the final causes of all social changes and political revolutions are to be sought not in men's brains, not in men's better insight into eternal truth and justice, but in changes in the modes of production and exchange. They are to be sought not in the philosophy, but in the economics of each particular epoch. The growing perception that existing social institutions are unreasonable and unjust that reason has become unreason and right wrong, is only proof that in the modes of production and exchange changes have silently taken place, with which the social order, adapted to earlier economic conditions, is no longer in keeping. From this it also follows that the means of getting rid of the incongruities that have been brought to light must also be present, in a more or less developed condition, within the changed modes of production themselves. These means are not to be invented by deduction from fundamental principles, but are to be discovered in the stubborn facts of the existing system of production. What is, then, the position of modern socialism in this connection? The present structure of society, this is now pretty generally conceded, is the creation of the ruling class of today, of the bourgeoisie. The mode of production peculiar to the bourgeoisie, known since Marx as the capitalist mode of production, was incompatible with the feudal system, with the privileges it conferred upon individuals, entire social ranks, and local corporations, as well as the hereditary ties of subordination which constituted the framework of its social organization. The bourgeoisie broke up the feudal system, and built upon its ruins the capitalist order of society. The kingdom of free competition, of personal liberty, of the equality before the law of all commodity owners, of all the rest of the capitalist blessings. Thenceforward, the capitalist mode of production could develop in freedom. Since steam, machinery, and the making of machines by machinery transformed the older manufacture into modern industry, the productive forces evolved under the guidance of the bourgeoisie developed with a rapidity and in a degree unheard of before. But just as the older manufacture, in its time and handicraft, becoming more developed under its influence, had come into collision with the feudal trammels of the guilds, so now modern industry, in its more complete development, comes into collision with the bounds within which the capitalistic mode of production holds it confined. The new productive forces have already outgrown the capitalist mode of using them, and this conflict between productive forces and modes of production is not a conflict engendered in the mind of man like that between original sin and divine justice. It exists, in fact, objectively outside us, independently of the will and actions even of the men that have brought it on. Modern socialism is nothing but the reflex, in thought, of this conflict, in fact. Its ideal reflection, in the minds first, of the class directly suffering under it, the working class. Now, in what does this conflict consist? Before capitalistic production, that is, in the Middle Ages, the system of petty industry obtains generally based upon the private property of the laborers in their means of production. In the country, the agriculture of the small peasant, freeman, or serf. In the towns, the handicrafts, organized in guilds. The instruments of labor, land, agricultural implements, the workshop, the tool, 
were the instruments of labor of single individuals, adapted for the use of one worker, and therefore, of necessity, small, dwarfish, circumscribed. But for this very reason they belonged, as a rule, to the producer himself. To concentrate these scattered, limited means of production, to enlarge them, to turn them into the powerful levers of production of the present day, this was precisely the historic rule of capitalist production and of its upholder, the bourgeoisie. In the fourth section of Das Kapital, Marx has explained in detail how, since the fifteenth century, this has been historically worked out through the three phases of simple cooperation, manufacture, and modern industry. But the bourgeoisie, as is also shown here, could not transform these puny means of production into mighty productive forces without transforming them, at the same time, from means of production of the individual into social means of production only workable by a collectivity of men. The spinning wheel, the handloom, the blacksmith's hammer, were replaced by the spinning machine, the power loom, the steam hammer, the individual workshop, by the factory, implying the cooperation of hundreds and thousands of workmen. In like manner, production itself changed from the series of individual into a series of social acts, and the products from individual to social products. The yarn, the cloth, the metal articles that now came out of the factory were the joint product of many workers, through whose hands they had successively to pass before they were ready. No one person could say of them, I made that, this is my product. But where, in a given society, the fundamental form of production is that spontaneous division of labor which creeps in gradually and not on any preconceived plan, there the products take on the form of commodities, whose mutual exchange, buying and selling, enable the individual producers to satisfy their manifold wants. And this was the case in the Middle Ages. The peasant, for example, sold to the artisan agricultural products and bought from him the products of his handicraft. Into this society of individual producers, of commodity producers, the new mode of production thrust itself. In the midst of the old division of labor, grown up spontaneously and upon no definite plan, which had governed the whole of society, now arose division of labor upon a definite plan, as organized in the factory. Side by side with individual production appeared social production. The products of both were sold in the same market, and therefore at prices at least approximately equal. But organization upon a definite plan was stronger than spontaneous division of labor. The factories working with the combined social forces of a collectivity of individuals produced their commodities far more cheaply than the individual small producers. Individual production succumbed in one department after another. Socialized production revolutionized all the old methods of production. But its revolutionary character was, at the same time, so little recognized that it was, on the contrary, introduced as a means of increasing and developing the production of commodities. When it arose, it found ready-made, and made liberal use of, certain machinery for the production and exchange of commodities. Merchants' capital, handicraft, wage labor. Socialized production thus introducing itself as a new form of the production of commodities, it was a matter of course that under it the old forms of appropriation remained in full swing, and were applied to its products as well. In the medieval stage of evolution of the production of commodities, the question as to the owner of the product of labor could not arise. The individual producer, as a rule, had, from raw material belonging to himself, and generally his own handiwork, produced it with his own tools, by the labor of his own hands or of his family. There was no need for him to appropriate the new product. It belonged wholly to him, as a matter of course. His property in the product was, therefore, based upon his own labor. Even where external help was used, this was, as a rule, of little importance, and very generally was compensated by something other than wages. 
the apprentices and journeymen of the guilds worked less for board and wages than for education in order that they might become master craftsmen themselves then came the concentration of the means of production and of the producers in large workshops and manufactories their transformation into actual socialized means of production and socialized producers but the socialized producers and means of production and their products were still treated after this change just as they had been before that is as the means of production and the products of individuals hitherto the owner of the instruments of labor had himself appropriated the product because as a rule it was his own product and the assistance of others was the exception now the owner of the instruments of labor always appropriated to himself the product although it was no longer his product but exclusively the product of the labor of others thus the products now produced socially were not appropriated by those who had actually set in motion the means of production and actually produced the commodities but by the capitalists the means of production and production itself had become in essence socialized but they were subjected to a form of appropriation which presupposes the private production of individuals under which therefore everyone owns his own product and brings it to market the mode of production is subjected to this form of appropriation although it abolishes the conditions upon which the latter rests this contradiction which gives to the new mode of production its capitalistic character contains the germ of the whole of the social antagonisms of today the greater the mastery obtained by the new mode of production over all important fields of production and in all manufacturing countries the more it reduced individual production to an insignificant residuum the more clearly was brought out the incompatibility of socialized production with capitalistic appropriation the first capitalists found as we have said alongside of other forms of labor wage labor ready-made for them on the market but it was exceptional complementary accessory transitory wage labor the agricultural laborer though on occasion he hired himself out for the day had a few acres of his own land on which he could at all events live at a pinch the guilds were so organized that the journeyman of today became the master of tomorrow but all this changed as soon as the means of production became socialized and concentrated in the hands of capitalists the means of production as well as the product of the individual producer became more and more worthless there was nothing left for him but to turn wage-worker under the capitalist wage-labor aforetime the exception and accessory now became the rule and basis of all production aforetime complementary it now became the sole remaining function of the worker the wage-worker for a time became a wage-worker for life the number of these permanent wage-workers was further enormously increased by the breaking up of the feudal system that occurred at the same time by the disbanding of the retainers of the feudal lords the eviction of the peasants from their homesteads etc the separation was made complete between the means of production concentrated in the hands of the capitalists on the one side and the producers possessing nothing but their labor-power on the other the contradiction between socialized production and capitalistic appropriation manifested itself as the antagonism of proletariat and bourgeoisie we have seen that the capitalistic mode of production thrust its way into a society of commodity producers of individual producers whose social bond was the exchange of their products but every society based on the production of commodities has this peculiarity that the producers have lost control over their own social interrelations each man produces for himself with such means of production as he may happen to have and for such exchange as he may require to satisfy his remaining wants no one knows how much of this particular article is coming on the market nor how much of it will be wanted no one knows whether his individual product will meet an actual demand whether he will be able to make good his cost of production or even to sell his commodity at all anarchy reigns in socialized production 
But the production of commodities, like every other form of production, has its peculiar inherent laws inseparable from it, and these laws work, despite anarchy, in and through anarchy. They reveal themselves in the only persistent form of social interrelations, that is, in exchange, and here they affect the individual producers as compulsory laws of competition. They are, at first, unknown to these producers themselves, and have to be discovered by them gradually and as the result of experience. They work themselves out, therefore, independently of the producers and in antagonism to them as inexorable natural laws of their particular form of production. The product governs the producers. In medieval society, especially in the earlier centuries, production was essentially directed towards satisfying the wants of the individual. It satisfied, in the main, only the wants of the producer and his family. Where relations of personal dependence existed, as in the country, it also helped to satisfy the wants of the feudal lord. In all this there was, therefore, no exchange. The products, consequently, did not assume the character of commodities. The family of the peasant produced almost everything they wanted, clothes and furniture, as well as means of subsistence. Only when it began to produce more than was sufficient to supply its own wants and the payments in kind of the feudal lord, only then did it also produce commodities. This surplus, thrown into socialized exchange and offered for sale, became commodities. The artisans of the towns, it is true, had from the first to produce for exchange. But they also, themselves, supplied the greatest part of their own individual wants. They had gardens and plots of land. They turned their cattle out into the communal forest, which also yielded them timber and firing. The women spun flax, wool, and so forth. Production for the purpose of exchange, production of commodities, was only in its infancy. Hence, exchange was restricted, the market narrow, the methods of production stable. There was local exclusiveness without, local unity within. The mark in the country, in the town, the guild. But with the extension of the production of commodities, and especially with the introduction of the capitalist mode of production, the laws of commodity production, hitherto latent, came into action more openly and with greater force. The old bonds were loosened, the old exclusive limits broken through. The producers were more and more turned into independent, isolated producers of commodities. It became apparent that the production of society at large was ruled by absence of plan, by accidents, by anarchy, and this anarchy grew to greater and greater height. But the chief means of aid of which the capitalist mode of production intensified this anarchy of socialized production was the exact opposite of anarchy. It was the increasing organization of production, upon a social basis, in every individual productive establishment. By this the old peaceful, stable condition of things was ended. Wherever this organization of production was introduced into a branch of industry, it brooked no other method of production by its side. The field of labor became a battleground. The great geographical discoveries, and the colonization following upon them, multiplied markets and quickened the transformation of handicraft into manufacture. The war did not simply break out between the individual producers of particular localities. The local struggles begat, in their turn, national conflicts the commercial wars of the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries. Finally, modern industry and the opening of the world market made the struggle universal, and at the same time gave it an unheard-of virulence. Advantages in nature, or artificial conditions of production, now decide the existence or non-existence of individual capitalists, as well as of whole industries and countries. He that falls is remorselessly cast aside. It is the Darwinian struggle of the individual for existence transferred from nature to society with intensified violence. The conditions of existence natural to the animal appear as the final term of human development. The contradiction between socialized production and capitalistic appropriation now presents itself as an antagonism between the organization of production in the individual workshop 
and the anarchy of production in society generally. The capitalistic mode of production moves in these two forms of the antagonism imminent to it from its very origin. It is never able to get out of that vicious circle which Fourier had already discovered. What Fourier could not indeed see in his time is that this circle is gradually narrowing, that the movement becomes more and more a spiral and must come to an end, like the movement of the planets, by collision with the center. It is the compelling force of anarchy in the production of society at large that more and more completely turns the great majority of men into proletarians, and it is the masses of the proletariat, again, who will finally put an end to anarchy in production. It is the compelling force of anarchy in social production that turns the limitless perfectibility of machinery under modern industry into a compulsory law by which every individual industrial capitalist must perfect his machinery more and more under the penalty of ruin. But the perfecting of machinery is making human labor superfluous. If the introduction and increase of machinery means the displacement of millions of manual by a few machine workers, improvement of machinery means the displacement of more and more of the machine workers themselves. It means, in the last instance, the production of a number of available wage-workers in excess of the average needs of capital. The formation of a complete industrial reserve army, as I called it in 1845, available at the times when industry is working at high pressure, to be cast out upon the street when the inevitable crash comes. A constant dead weight upon the limits of the working class in its struggle for existence with capital, a regulator for the keeping of wages down to the low level that suits the interests of capital. Thus it comes about, to quote Marx, that machinery becomes the most powerful weapon in the war of capital against the working class, that the instruments of labor constantly tear the means of subsistence out of the hands of the laborer, that the very product of the worker is turned into an instrument for his subjugation. Thus it comes about that the economizing of the instruments of labor becomes at the same time, from the outset, the most reckless waste of labor power, and robbery based upon the normal conditions under which labor functions. That machinery, the most powerful instrument for shortening labor time, becomes the most unfailing means for placing every moment of the laborer's time and that of his family at the disposal of the capitalist for the purpose of expanding the value of his capital. Thus it comes about that overwork of some becomes the preliminary condition for the idleness of others, and that modern industry, which hunts after new consumers over the whole world, forces the consumption of the masses at home down to a starvation minimum, and in doing thus destroys its own home market. The law that always equilibrates the relative surplus population, or industrial reserve army, to the extent and energy of accumulation, this law rivets the laborer to capital more firmly than the wedges of Vulcan did Prometheus to the rock. It establishes an accumulation of misery corresponding with accumulation of capital. Accumulation of wealth at one pole is therefore at the same time accumulation of misery, agony of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation at the opposite pole, that is, on the side of the class that produces its own product in the form of capital. And to expect any other division of the products from the capitalistic mode of production is the same as expecting the electrodes of a battery not to decompose acidulated water not to liberate oxygen at the positive, hydrogen at the negative pole, so long as they are connected with the battery. We have seen that the ever-increasing perfectibility of modern machinery is, by the anarchy of social production, turned into a compulsory law that forces the individual industrial capitalist always to improve his machinery, always to increase its productive force. The bare possibility of extending the field of production is transformed for him into a similar compulsory law. The enormous expansive force of modern industry, compared with which that of gases is mere child's play, appears to us now as a necessity for expansion, both qualitative and quantitative, that laughs at all resistance. Such resistance is offered by consumption, by sales, by the markets for the products of the modern industry 
but the capacity for extension extensive and intensive of the markets is primarily governed by quite different laws that work much less energetically the extension of the markets cannot keep pace with the extension of production the collision becomes inevitable and as this cannot produce any real solution as long as it does not break in pieces the capitalist mode of production the collisions become periodic capitalist production has begotten another vicious circle as a matter of fact since eighteen twenty five when the first general crisis broke out the whole industrial and commercial world production and exchange among all civilized people and their more or less barbaric hangers-on are thrown out of joint about once every ten years commerce is at a standstill the markets are glutted products accumulate as multitudinous as they are unsaleable hard cash disappears credit vanishes factories are closed the mass of the workers are in want of the means of subsistence because they have produced too much of the means of subsistence bankruptcy follows upon bankruptcy execution upon execution the stagnation lasts for years productive forces and products are wasted and destroyed wholesale until the accumulated mass of commodities finally filter off more or less depreciated in value until production and exchange gradually begin to move again little by little the pace quickens it becomes a trot the industrial trot breaks into a canter the canter in turn grows into the headlong gallop of a perfect steeplechase of industry commercial credit and speculation which finally after breakneck leaps ends where it began in the ditch of a crisis and so over and over again we have now since the year eighteen twenty five gone through this five times and at the present moment eighteen seventy seven we are going through it for a sixth time and the character of these crises is so clearly defined that fourier hit all of them off when he describes the first as crise plethorique a crisis from plethora in these crises the contradiction between socialized production and the capitalist appropriation ends in a violent explosion the circulation of commodities is for the time being stopped money the means of circulation becomes a hindrance to circulation all the laws of production and circulation of commodities are turned upside down the economic collision has reached its apogee the mode of production is in rebellion against the mode of exchange the fact that the socialized organization of production within the factory has developed so far that it has become incompatible with the anarchy of production in society which exists side by side with and dominates it is brought home to the capitalists themselves by the violent concentration of capital that occurs during crises through the ruin of many large and a still greater number of small capitalists the whole mechanism of the capitalist mode of production breaks down under the pressure of the productive forces its own creations it is no longer able to turn all this mass of means of production into capital they lie fallow and for that very reason the industrial reserve army must also lie fallow means of production means of subsistence available laborers all the elements of production and of general wealth are present in abundance but abundance becomes the source of distress and want because it is the very thing that prevents the transformation of the means of production and subsistence into capital for in capitalistic society the means of production can only function when they have undergone a preliminary transformation into capital into the means of exploiting human labor power the necessity of this transformation into capital of the means of production and subsistence stands like a ghost between these and the workers it alone forbids the means of production to function the workers to work and live on the one hand therefore the capitalistic mode of production stands convicted of its own incapacity to further direct these productive forces on the other these productive forces themselves with increasing energy press forward to the removal of existing contradiction to the abolition of their quality as capital 
to the practical recognition of their character as social productive forces. This rebellion of the productive forces, as they grow more and more powerful, against their quality as capital, this stronger and stronger command that their social character shall be recognized, forces the capitalist class itself to treat them more and more as social productive forces, so far as this is possible under capitalist conditions. The period of industrial high pressure, with its unbounded inflation of credits, not less than the crash itself, by the collapse of great capitalist establishments, tends to bring about that form of the socialization of great masses of means of production which we meet with in the different kinds of joint stock companies. Many of these means of production and of distribution are, from the outside, so colossal that, like the railroads, they exclude all other forms of capitalistic exploitation. At a further stage of evolution, this form also becomes insufficient. The producers on a large scale, in a particular branch of industry, in a particular country, unite in a trust, a union for the purpose of regulating production. They determine the total amount to be produced, parcel it out among themselves, and thus enforce the selling price fixed beforehand. But trusts of this kind, as soon as business becomes bad, are generally liable to break up, and on this very account compel a yet greater concentration of association. The whole of this particular industry is turned into one gigantic joint stock company. Internal competition gives place to the internal monopoly of this one company. This has happened in 1890 with the English alkali production, which is now, after the fusion of 48 large works, in the hands of one company, conducted upon a single plan, and with a capital of six million pounds. In the trusts, freedom of competition changes into its very opposite, into monopoly, and the production without any definite plan of capitalistic society capitulates to the production upon a definite plan of the invading socialistic society. Certainly, this is so far still to the benefit and advantage of the capitalists. But in this case, the exploitation is so palpable that it must break down. No nation will put up with production conducted by trusts with so barefaced an exploitation of the community by a small band of dividend-mongers. In any case, with trusts or without, the official representative of capitalist society, the state, will ultimately have to undertake the direction of production. This necessity for conversion into state property is felt first in the great institutions for intercourse and communication the post-office, the telegraphs, the railways. If the crisis demonstrates the incapacity of the bourgeoisie for managing any longer modern productive forces, the transformation of the great establishments for production and distribution into joint stock companies, trusts, and state property show how unnecessary the bourgeoisie are for that purpose. All the social functions of the capitalist are now performed by salaried employees. The capitalist has no further social function than that of pocketing dividends, tearing off coupons, and gambling on the stock exchange, where the different capitalists despoil one another of their capital. At first, the capitalist mode of production forces out the workers. Now it forces out the capitalists, and reduces them, just as it reduced the workers, to the ranks of the surplus population, although not immediately into those of the Industrial Reserve Army. But the transformation, either into joint stock companies and trusts, or into state ownership, does not do away with the capitalistic nature of the productive forces. In the joint stock companies and trusts this is obvious, and the modern state, again, is only the organization that bourgeois society takes on in order to support the external conditions of the capitalist mode of production against the encroachments, as well of the workers as of individual capitalists. The modern state, no matter what its form, is essentially a capitalist machine, the state of the capitalists, the ideal personification of the total national capital. The more it proceeds to the taking over of productive forces, the more does it actually become the national capitalist, the more citizens does it exploit. The workers remain wage workers, proletarians. The capitalist relation is not done away with, it is rather brought to a head. 
but brought to a head it topples over state ownership of the productive forces is not the solution of the conflict but concealed within it are the technical conditions that form the elements of that solution this solution can only consist in the practical recognition of the social nature of the modern forces of production and therefore in harmonizing the modes of production appropriation and exchange with the socialized character of the means of production and this can only come about by society openly and directly taking positions of the productive forces which have outgrown all control except that of society as a whole the social character of the means of production and of the products today reacts against the producers periodically disrupts all production and exchange acts only like a law of nature working blindly forcibly destructively but with the taking over by society of the productive forces the social character of the means of production and of the products will be utilized by the producers with a perfect understanding of its nature and instead of being a source of disturbance and periodical collapse will become the most powerful lever of production itself active social forces work exactly like natural forces blindly forcibly destructively so long as we do not understand and reckon with them but when once we understand them when once we grasp their action their direction their effects it depends only upon ourselves to subject them more and more to our own will and by means of them to reach our own ends and this holds quite especially of the mighty productive forces of today as long as we obstinately refuse to understand the nature and the character of these social means of action and this understanding goes against the grain of the capitalist mode of production and its defenders so long these forces are at work in spite of us in opposition to us so long they master us as we have shown above in detail but when once their nature is understood they can in the hands of the producers working together be transformed from master demons into willing servants the difference is as that between the destructive force of electricity in the lightning of the storm and electricity under command in the telegraph and the voltaic arc the difference between a conflagration and fire working in the service of man with this recognition at last of the real nature of the productive forces of today the social anarchy of production gives place to a social regulation of production upon a definite plan according to the needs of the community and of each individual then the capitalist mode of appropriation in which the product enslaves first the producer and then the appropriator is replaced by the mode of appropriation of the products that is based upon the nature of the modern means of production upon the one hand direct social appropriation as means to the maintenance and extension of production on the other direct individual appropriation as means of subsistence and of enjoyment whilst the capitalist mode of production more and more completely transforms the great majority of the production into proletarians it creates the power which under penalty of its own destruction is forced to accomplish this revolution whilst it forces on more and more the transformation of the vast means of production already socialized into state property it shows itself the way to accomplishing this revolution the proletariat seizes political power and turns the means of production into state property but in doing this it abolishes itself as proletariat abolishes all class distinctions and class antagonisms abolishes also the state as state society thus far based on class antagonisms had need of the state that is of an organization of the particular class which was pro tempore the exploiting class an organization for the purpose of preventing any interference from without with the existing conditions of production and therefore especially for the purpose of forcibly keeping the exploited classes in the condition of oppression corresponding with the given weight of production slavery serfdom wage labor the state was the official representative of society as a whole the gathering of it together into a visible embodiment but it was this only in so far as it was the state of that class which itself represented for the time being society as a whole in ancient times the state of slave-owning citizens 
in the Middle Ages, the feudal lords, in our own time, the bourgeoisie. When at last it becomes the real representative of the whole of society, it renders itself unnecessary. As soon as there is no longer any social class to be held in subjection, as soon as class rule and the individual struggle for existence, based on our present anarchy in production, with the collisions of excesses arising from these, are removed, nothing more remains to be repressed, and a special repressive force, a state, is no longer necessary. The first act by virtue of which the state really constitutes itself the representative of the whole of society, the taking possession of the means of production in the name of society, this is, at the same time, its last independent act as a state. State interference in social relations becomes, in one domain after another, superfluous, and then dies out of itself. The government of persons is replaced by the administration of things, and by the conduct of processes of production. The state is not abolished, it dies out. This gives a measure of the value of the phrase, a free state, both as to its justifiable use at times by agitators, and as to its ultimate scientific insufficiency, and also for the demands of the so-called anarchists for the abolition of the state out of hand. Since the historical appearance of the capitalist mode of production, the appropriation by society of all the means of production has often been dreamed of, more or less vaguely, by individuals, as well as by sects, as the ideal of the future. But it could become possible, could become a historical necessity, only when the actual conditions of its realization were there. Like every other social advance, it becomes practicable, not by men understanding that the existence of classes is in contradiction to justice, equality, etc., not by the mere willingness to abolish these classes, but by virtue of certain new economic conditions. The separation of society into an exploiting and an exploited class, a ruling and an oppressed class, was the necessary consequence of the deficient and restricted development of production in former times. So long as the total social labor only yields a produce which but slightly exceeds that barely necessity for the existence of all, so long, therefore, as labor engages all or almost all the time of the great majority of the members of society, so long of necessity this society is divided into classes. Side by side with the great majority, exclusively bond slaves to labor, arises a class freed from directly productive labor, which looks after the general affairs of society. The direction of labor, state business, law, science, arts, etc. It is, therefore, the law of division of labor that lies at the basis of the division into classes. But this does not prevent this division into classes from being carried out by means of violence and robbery, trickery and fraud. It does not prevent the ruling class, once having the upper hand, from consolidating its power at the expense of the working class from turning their social leadership into an intensified exploitation of the masses. But if, upon this showing, division into classes has a certain historical justification, it has this only for a given period, only under given social conditions. It was based upon the insufficiency of production. It will be swept away by the complete development of modern productive forces, and, in fact, the abolition of classes in society presupposes a degree of historical evolution at which the existence, not simply of this or that particular ruling class, but of any ruling class at all, and, therefore, the existence of class distinction itself has become an obsolete anachronism. It presupposes, therefore, the development of production carried out to a degree at which appropriation of the means of production and of the products and with this of political domination, of the monopoly of culture, and of intellectual leadership by a particular class of society, has become not only superfluous, but economically, politically, intellectually, a hindrance to development. This point is now reached. Their political and intellectual bankruptcy is scarcely any longer a secret to the bourgeoisie themselves. 
their economic bankruptcy recurs regularly every ten years. In every crisis, society is suffocated beneath the weight of its own productive forces and products, which it cannot use, and stands helpless face to face with the absurd contradiction that the producers have nothing to consume, because consumers are wanting. The expansive force of the means of production bursts the bonds that the capitalist mode of production had imposed upon them. Their deliverance from these bonds is the one precondition for an unbroken, constantly accelerated development of the productive forces, and therewith for a practically unlimited increase of production itself. Nor is this all. The socialized appropriation of the means of production does away not only with the present artificial restrictions upon production, but also with the positive waste and devastation of productive forces and products that are at the present time the inevitable concomitants of production, and that reach their heights in the crises. Further, it sets free for the community at large a mass of means of production and of products by doing away with the senseless extravagance of the ruling classes of today and their political representatives. The possibility of securing for every member of society, by means of socialized production, an existence not only fully sufficient materially and becoming day by day more full, but an existence guaranteeing to all the free development and exercise of their physical and mental faculties. This possibility is now for the first time here, but it is here. With the seizing of the means of production by society, production of commodities is done away with, and, simultaneously, the mastery of the product over its production. Anarchy in social production is replaced by systematic, definitive organization. That struggle for the individual existence disappears. Then, for the first time, man, in a certain sense, is finally marked off from the rest of the animal kingdom, and emerges from mere animal conditions of existence into really human ones. The whole sphere of the conditions of life which environ man, and which have hitherto ruled man, now comes under the dominion and control of man, who, for the first time, becomes the real, conscious lord of nature, because he has now become the master of his own social organization. The laws of his own social action, hitherto standing face to face with man as laws of nature foreign to and dominating him, will then be used with full understanding, and so mastered by him. Man's own social organization, hitherto confronting him as a necessity imposed by nature and history, now becomes the result of his own free action. The extraneous objective forces that have hitherto governed history pass under the control of man himself. Only from that time will man himself, more and more consciously, make his own history. Only from that time will the social causes set in movement by him have, in the main and in the constantly growing measure, the results intended by him. It is the ascent of man from the kingdom of necessity to the kingdom of freedom. Let us briefly sum up our sketch of historical evolution. 1. Medieval Society Individual Production on a Small Scale means a production adapted for individual use, hence primitive, ungainly, petty, dwarfed in action. Production for immediate consumption, either of the producer himself or of his feudal lord. Only where an excess of production over this consumption occurs is such excess offered for sale, enters into exchange. Production of commodities, therefore, only in its infancy but already it contains within itself an embryo, anarchy in the production of society at large. 2. Capitalist Revolution Transformation of industry, at first by means of simple cooperation and manufacture, concentration of the means of production, hitherto scattered, into great workshops. As a consequence, their transformation from individual to social means of production a transformation which does not, on the whole, affect the form of exchange. The old forms of appropriation remain in force. The capitalist appears. In his capacity as owner of the means of production, he also appropriates the products and turns them into commodities. 
production has become a social act. Exchange and appropriation continue to be individual acts, the acts of individuals. The social product is appropriated by the individual capitalist. Fundamental contradiction, whence arise all the contradictions in which our present-day society moves and which modern industry brings to light. A. Severance of the producer from the means of production, condemnation of the worker to wage labor for life, antagonism between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. B. Growing predominance and increasing effectiveness of the laws governing the production of commodities. Unbridled competition, contradiction between socialized organization in the individual factory and social anarchy in production as a whole. C. On the other hand, perfecting of machinery, made by competition compulsory for each individual manufacturer, and complemented by a constantly growing displacement of laborers. Industrial Reserve Army. On the other hand, unlimited extension of production, also compulsory under competition for every manufacturer. On both sides, unheard of development of productive forces, excess of supply over demand, overproduction, glutting of the markets, crises every ten years, the vicious circle. Excess here of means of production and products, excess there of laborers, without employment and without means of existence. But these two levers of production and of social well-being are unable to work together, because the capitalist form of production prevents the productive forces from working and the products from circulating, unless they are first turned into capital which their very superabundance prevents. The contradiction has grown into an absurdity. The mode of production rises in rebellion against the form of exchange. The bourgeoisie are convicted of incapacity further to manage their own social productive forces. d. Partial recognition of the social character of the productive forces forced upon the capitalists themselves, taking over of the great institutions of production and communication first by joint-stock companies, later on by trusts, then by the state. The bourgeoisie demonstrated to be a superfluous class. All its social functions are now performed by salaried employees. 3. Proletarian Revolution Solution of the Contradictions The proletariat seizes the public power, and by means of this transforms the socialized means of production, slipping from the hands of the bourgeoisie, into public property. By this act, the proletariat frees the means of production from the character of capital they have thus far borne, and gives their socialized character complete freedom to work itself out. Socialized production upon a predetermined plan becomes henceforth possible. The development of production makes the existence of different classes of society thenceforth an anachronism. In proportion as anarchy in social production vanishes, the political authority of the state dies out. Man, at last the master of his own form of social organization, becomes at the same time the lord over nature, his own master free. To accomplish this act of universal emancipation is the historical mission of the modern proletariat. To thoroughly comprehend the historical conditions and thus the very nature of this act, to impart to the now oppressed proletarian class a full knowledge of the conditions, and of the meaning of the momentous act it is called upon to accomplish, this is the task of the theoretical expression of the proletarian movement, scientific socialism. End of chapter 3 End of Socialism, Utopian and Scientific